Support this podcast and keep us going. Go to everydaynovelist.com slash support to join up. Welcome to The Everyday Novelist. My name is J. Daniel Sawyer, author of nearly 30 books, more than 30 short stories, and numerous articles and scripts and essays, coming to you from up in the crow's nest with my spyglass on this daily voyage through the dicey waters of business, craft, learning, and art in the writing life. Welcome to The Questions, episode 932. Today we hear from Herbert, who asks... What are some techniques for maintaining tension in a series-long character arc for a series of indeterminate length? Think a mystery series that has no definite conclusion planned. The iconic example would be the always budding but slowly advancing romance that I don't know anyone who does this. Shush. (laughs) The iconic example would be the always budding but slowly advancing romance the lead is in, but others might be a mentor-mentee relationship with another character. Is it best to resolve them after a certain amount of time and replace that growth with something else? Yes, please. Yeah, (laughs) you don't want the moonlighting effect to happen. So for those of you who don't know, Moonlighting was this mystery comedy series back in the late 80s that was super popular. It was a television show. It it was the first um, series to be labeled a dramedy. Right. It's where Bruce Willis got his start in the public eye. In fact, when he got hired for Die Hard, everyone was like, the moonlighting guy doing action? Are you kidding me? <laughs> <laughs> um, they were The studio was so unconfident in how that would sell that they didn't put him on the initial movie poster. <laughs> <laughs> or his name, in fact. Um, then when it went blockbuster, a week after release, they replaced all the posters with Bruce Willis and his face and, you know, made a big deal out of it. So what happened with Moonlighting was they started off with a platonic partnership between the two PIs. Mm-hmm. And it after, what, season one, maybe? Uh, Somewhere season one or season two. It, no, it was like season three. It started to move into a will-they-won't-they they thing. Okay. For a long time. Okay. A long time. And they kept getting close and then saying, nope, nope, never again. And then they seemed to drop it and then they started to bring it back. And it was driving everybody crazy until finally they did. And it sucked all of the air out of the room. By paying that off, all the ratings tanked because they had spun it out for so long that one, the, the whole series had become will they or won't they. And so when they did, there was nothing else the series was about. Mm-hmm. So you don't want that to happen. So it is a very good idea to pay off those things. But when you're paying it off, have something else building that can take over right there. Yeah. Um, in the Clark Lantham Mysteries, I do have an endpoint planned. It's not going to happen when I planned it for. I planned it for book 12. It looks like it's going to happen in book 10. But over the course of the series, there's several arcs going on that maintain tension. There's a will-they-won't-they. They. There's a mentor-mentee relationship. There's a larger conspiracy case that's hanging over everybody's heads. And then every volume itself has the case at hand and what's that and what that's doing to all the other arcs as well as the case itself. And I work really hard to make sure the case itself is interesting enough that you can jump into the series at any point and not be lost or feel like you've uh, you've been hard done by. Mm-hmm. Um, I've worked really hard to make it one of those where if you read it in order you get more out of it, and that's going to work all the way up until the last volume where you will have half to have read at least the first book in yeah. order to in order to follow what's going on. But 
Kitty, you're really good at this kind of thing. What are some other ways that people do this? I was actually going to say roughly the same thing that that you do. Um, replace one kind of story tension, one kind of question, with another, and have different kinds of questions going through the series, and play them against each other so that they they don't all resolve at the same time. If you like television, long-running television shows that do multiple season-long and series-long arcs tend to pull off those character romances a lot better than the ones where it's entirely episodic, because often with those series, the will-they-or-won't-they is the only thing that is going through the whole thing and isn't part of the episodic thing. So if, if you have more than one um, thing building. Yeah, let's see. Uh, the first five seasons of Dexter did this pretty well. Um, Babylon, Babylon 5, 5 did this wonderfully. And Babylon 5 shows you how it's much easier to do this with an, with an ensemble than with a single lead. Yes. Um, there is a big hiccup in Babylon 5 at the end of season four. Because they thought they were going to be canceled, they rushed some things, and then other things got cut off prematurely because one of the actors had to leave Mm -hmm. for career reasons. But with the exception of those two hiccups, Babylon 5 did an amazing job of maintaining ongoing tension on multiple levels, Mm -hmm. even to the point where they had two or two and a half epic arcs that went through the whole series, the Shadow War, the Earth War, and the Drock War. Mm-hmm. Early, well, the Drock War was the fallout from the Shadow War, but it was... Um, Joe Straczynski did that wonderfully on the macroscopic level, and then each of the characters had multiple arcs that they went through, and uh, he handed off very well from one to the other, where he would give you good, solid resolution on one thing, give you a less than an episode of breathing room, and then pick up another dangling thread from another arc that had been just waiting in the wings at the end of the episode so that it propelled you forward into the next arc of the series. Mm. And another thing is in, in terms of, of a, resolving something really specific, like a, a romantic relationship, if you solve the will they or won't they question in book three or season three or, or whatever, don't just drop that. There's so much more to romance than and there's so much more to romance than will they or won't they. Hmm. Is that how, how do they how make do, the relationship how work? How do they balance their co-workerness? Mm-hmm. And, because your story is probably a, a team or, or people who work together. How, how do they balance their, their work and their romance? Um, and the competing obligations of each. And the obligations of Especially each. if they're in a high-danger profession, mm-hmm. you want to protect the one you love, but on the other hand, they have to be able to do dangerous things to do what you're doing. Exactly. Um, which is one of the things I had fun with in the last Lantham novel that's not out yet. But uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, let's see. Um, if you can deal with the level of trashiness and the occasional really stupid season, True Blood did some really good stuff on this. Oh, yeah. What are some other ones that were really good with this? Um, Dune did a wonderful job. The original six books of Dune, especially the first four, did a really good job of maintaining dramatic tension despite thousands of years passing. Oh, and that's that's another one, speaking of thousands of years. If your series is long-running enough, introduce new characters. Yes. Introduce a new team. A, a lot of times with um, with series, both in television and, and in fiction, 
the stagnation comes because nobody retires, nobody moves on to a, another job. Nobody dies. Nobody dies. And nobody's born. Nobody's it's born. Amazing the extra uh, mileage you can get out of children and new mentees and whatnot coming online. Mm-hmm. The next generation coming through. It's a part of life that doesn't get explored in a lot of fiction right now, partly because people are having children so late. Um, mm-hmm. But it is a source of wonderful dramatic tension. And, um, yeah. Well, and part of that is because if you have your characters meeting and um, getting together on the show, you're not going to suddenly have a five or ten year old, and that's when they start to get interesting and and do interesting things. Mm-hmm. If you have them have kids, there's just like two seasons of a bumbling cute thing mm-hmm. in the screen, and nobody cares. Yeah, but with books, you can skip over that stuff. With books, you can skip over that. And and you could skip over a few years with TV shows and um, just, like, go five years ahead, and you have a, suddenly have a four-year-old who's talking and being a brat, and it's interesting. Or you could do the um, Star Trek Next Generation solution and <laughs> just have Klingons age really, really fast and wow, and in there's four, a teenager. In four years you go from a baby to a teenager who's leading an army. Okay, th- that was actually stupid. But you know, there are ways to get around that kind of thing. Yep. But yeah, and that's that's the trick. Is it The, the basic trick is that handoff. Um, spin up a new source of ongoing tension before you completely wind down the old source. And if you have it building for a while, it won't be as obvious to the audience that you're doing it in a panic because you don't want your series to end. Mm. Yeah. Um, also, ongoing generational challenges. You can learn a lot about this from reading, um, gener- uh, from reading family sagas. Mm. Um, as pulpy as he tends to be, Ken Follett's uh, books, especially The Pillars of the Earth and his Century series, are really, really good at this. Um, Herman Woke, of course, well, The Winds of War and War and Remembrance were all about World War II, but even they did a good It was a family job. saga. It was though. a family saga. I mean, they, they focused most of the storyline around two or three families. And by making it the story of the family, you have higher stakes than just the individual. Um, the Vorkosigan saga by Lois McMaster Bejeweled is really good at this. Um, and, uh, yeah, larger issues that go beyond... In fact, a good look at how not to do this is to watch the show Lost, mm-hmm. which, despite the fact that it was so addictive and it had a lot about it that was fun... Main, managed to maintain its dramatic tension by just having everybody fail to learn from anything ever. So they're, they all remain these perpetual man-children and woman-children that are operating on the shortest possible time horizon and doing stupid things in order to move the plot all the time. It was very annoying. That's a good example of how not to do it. Yeah, on a real desert island, they would have all been dead. Yeah. So anyway, that's what we got. Thank you very much for the question, and we'll see you tomorrow. 
The Everyday Novelist is written by J. Daniel Sawyer and presented by J. Daniel Sawyer and Kitty McKeon and is produced by Artistic Whispers Productions Incorporated. The text is copyright 2021 J. Daniel Sawyer and the production is copyright 2021 Artistic Whispers Productions Incorporated. This podcast is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License and all other rights are reserved to their respective owners. Join the conversation, submit a question, leave a comment, or a creative death threat, or find me at jdsawyeronminds.com or hit me at feedback at jdsawyer.net. We can't do it without you.